Uh, hey, this is Dan. I haven't called John yet uh, because unbeknownst to him, I have set up a Patreon for this show. My goal is to help us make a little bit of money without having to increase the number of sponsors. And a big part of John's income and pretty much all of mine comes from doing shows like this. And listener support really makes a big difference. I did mention this to John in the past, but he's hesitant because he didn't want the Patreon to suck and bring in nothing. And I told him that you guys would come through and that you would make it not suck. And for him to imagine how awesome it would be if everybody, all of our listeners gave like a dollar a month, that would be huge. Well, I'm planning on telling him at the end of February, and I really want to show him that you guys actually do care. Uh, So if this show brings you as much joy to listen to as it does for us to make it, please consider a small donation, even like a dollar a month. We would appreciate it tremendously. And I think it would be an awesome surprise for him. It's at patreon.com slash roadwork. Again, patreon.com slash roadwork. And don't worry, there is no way that he will find out about this until I tell him about it because he doesn't ever listen to the show. He doesn't listen to any of his shows uh, and he'll never know. So, but he'll help me keep, uh, Keep it a secret on Twitter. Thanks for your help. Thanks for your support. And uh, most of all, thanks for listening. Hello. Hello, John. How are you? Hi, Dan. You got, you're all set up. You're ready. I've got my stuff. I've got all my, I've got my, I've got a B caster microphone again. Okay. I've got my, my, uh, these Sony uh, MDR seven five zero six headphones that I've had since two thousand, and I've got my Macintosh computer. Everything you need to podcast in twenty seventeen. The three things, three things you need. You need sixteen uh, year old headphones, right? A Macintosh that you got when your old Macintosh was stolen, right? And then, um, and that, and never recovered. Uh, I, I had a Macintosh Air before, and I decided that I that I just didn't I just didn't trust it. What was wrong with it? What didn't you like about it? Well, everything was in the cloud. Mm. Oh, you know, it's an Air. Mm-hmm. It's made of Air. It doesn't <laughs> have it doesn't have parts. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's just inside. Solid, solid just, state. Yeah, it's just a. There's just a spirit. It's the spirit of the machine. You know, it's yeah, the spirit like, no, of radio. Uh, <laughs> and I wanted parts, you know, I wanted, uh, because this, this, uh, Apple that I have, it's a little thicker, right. It, it, for, to contain the brass gears right, and the, and the pneumatic tubes that is, that makes it a machine. Yeah. So, uh, so I have that. And then, uh, then uh, this B caster that I'm always talking about, but it's really, it's, um, well, you know, all I had to do was ha- go a few days without it, and I realized how, how how dependent on it I was. Well, you are finally back. You're in your home studio. Mm-hmm. You're ready to go. I've got some coffee brewing that you would not approve of. Well, why wouldn't I approve of it? <sighs> well, <clears throat> you know, I I tend to acquire coffee in uh, bursts, in spurts. Sure. You know, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the type of show that I do, one of the things in the swag bag, one of the perks is pound coffee or, a you know, whatever, 12 ounces of coffee, some, some bag of, uh, 
of seeds, right? Coffee seeds. Yeah. And, and, uh, so when I do an event and there are coffee seeds there, I, I, you know, I acquire sometimes a whole bushel of seeds and then I bring them home and there's just no way my people in the coffee business have explained to me many, many times. There's just no way to store them. You don't want to store them in the freezer because that dries them out. You don't want to store them in the refrigerator, et cetera, et cetera. You don't want to just leave them out on the counter. You don't want to, you know, spread them in the garden. Um, and so, but I'm in a position where it's like, I've got a bushel of these. I'm not going to throw them away. So I just do what, I just do what seems best. Some of it I put in the pantry, some I put in the freezer, some I put in the refrigerator, some I spread in the garden, and some I just leave on the counter. And it's often there for months, which imparts a kind of... I mean, it's got to get stale, I would think, and bitter, Mm -hmm. overly acidic. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It has all those And these are beans that you then are grinding or they're pre-ground? They're beans I'm grinding. Okay. But in some cases they are pre-ground because, you know, beggars can't be choosers. When I get a bushel of seeds, I don't get to choose what's in it. Um, And now, uh, because I was out of town for a while, all my creamer, or not creamer, my cream, my half and half, went a little bit sideways while I was gone. Often your half and half will last for a long time. But lately, I feel like the half and half producers are either lying about the date or they are something. Something is wrong with the half and half. It's not lasting a month like it used to. Uh, so I have almond milk in it, which I don't know. It's almonds. Uh, I feel like the the consistency of the almond milk is going to be too light. It's like a skim milk, and you're yeah. just. It's almost like you're just watering down your beverage. You've 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 hit the nail right on the head, Dan. Right. It just doesn't have the viscosity. Yeah. And that's what I want in a coffee additive is viscosity. Yes. Viscosity without without sweetness. I don't want it to be vanilla flavored. I don't want it to be Kentucky Fried Chicken flavored or whatever you have in those gas stations. I just want it to be thick and rich. Yep. Although I, I believe it was... Uh, now, is this the kind of uh, coffee like someone... If I came over, if I came over to visit... Would you, would you be like, yeah, let me make us some coffee, or would you say, ah, we don't want coffee here. Let me, let's go out. Oh no, I would say, you know, I would go through my assortment of yeah. coffees, and uh, because some of them are, you know, some coffees are are nicer than others, and some girls' coffees are are bigger than others. Sure. And I would pick the one that I thought was the most deluxe for you, and I would prepare it in my most deluxe fashion. Right. But I have only one fashion of preparing it, which is with a like a twelve pot coffee maker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like the only I don't, way to do it. I don't have a one of those things where you sit. You know, when you get coffee at my friends' houses, a lot of times you stand there while they sit and pour like two tablespoons at a time of hot water into this carafe, and it percolates and they are, you know, like making coffee is a 45 minute process, yeah. but it's not like a Japanese tea ceremony. It's a 45 minute process of standing in your kitchen with one hand on your hip and a pot of hot water, Yeah, you know, two tablespoons at a time. And I look at them and I go, well, it's just like, are you talking about an AeroPress or no, one of those just, just pure drip. They're beautiful things, 
It looks like a Bunsen burner, sort of. It looks like a uh, a Pyrex. I know what you're talking about. Thing, right? And then yeah. it's got a wood uh, choker mm-hmm. necklace on it. Yeah. And uh, and paper filters. And I'm like, <clears throat> I wonder. Do you also do you also take your bread and put it between tongs and toast it over an open? You know, turn the like gas burner on and just sit and toast your bread that way because that's what it seems like it seems like they invented a machine to do this work and it's called a toaster or in this case a coffee maker and this process i'm not sure i mean i've had the, i've had many many cups of this coffee made in this through this pyrex machine it's just coffee dan it just tastes like coffee yeah this to this coffee that i'm drinking here with the almond milk and the yeah i've got a i've got a mug from the black dog diner in martha's vineyard and, uh, which is, which is a, um, a diner I've never been to. And I think probably no one has ever been there. I think that it's just a merchandising operation. If you're in Martha's Vineyard or anywhere in Massachusetts yeah. uh, toward the coast, you'll see this black dog, black dog diner branded thing. <laughs> they sell them in airports. It's like, so you're making oh, me thirsty. Black- I'm going to have to open a LaCroix now. Yeah. You know, a delicious LaCroix, a flavored one or just a, uh, no, I'm not. I'm not insane. It's flavored one, of course. And and I actually, I'm sorry to report, I don't have any more of the coconut. I'm down to the uh, lime. Oh, just the, the lime. Back, the back stock now. Do you have any of the turkey gravy flavored Lacroix? No, that's, although I would definitely try that. Or uh, or antifreeze flavored. It's all antifreeze. Back in my youth, in my twenties, I was very into Seattle coffee when it was very very hard to get seattle coffee outside of seattle like in florida we had a barnes and noble that after being open for many years one day added a little cafe now this is not the starbucks uh that we the way we know there is a starbucks built into the you know like built into a a barnes and noble like there is today this was before that even it was just the barnes and noble coffee shop Proudly brewing Starbucks coffee. Wow! And I'd never, I had never heard of that coffee. I, mm-hmm. you know, I so I I tried it and I thought, well, this is this is great. And the guy who was back there making the coffee says, "You you think that's great?" I said, "Yes, it is actually great." And he said, "It's not great. You want to know what's great?" <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, well, you tell me." He said, "Seattle's best is great." Wow, this is the guy working at Starbucks. Well, working at the Barnes & Noble, proudly serving oh, I Starbucks coffee. I see, I see, I see. And he said Seattle's best coffee is better than that's Starbucks. What he, that's what he said. Uh-huh. But I got into the habit of, this is before we had a Starbucks in Central Florida anywhere. Right. But I got in the habit of ordering the beans from Starbucks, and I got a grinder, and then I, then I found a place locally where I could get beans at different stages of roasting. I could roast them uh-huh. myself. I could, it was, it what? was, Yeah. And I got really into it. I was very, very into that. And I gladly, at some point, left that all behind for good. (laughs) And any now, you know, like any kind of coffee is pretty much. I'm not sure what you're drinking would be something I would want, but I would drink it, you know. It's very expensive coffee, this coffee, because in in the Northwest. You've aged it. It's been aged. But you can't just give somebody uh, some like garbage coffee in your swag bag because everybody up here is a freaking pro coffee connoisseur. Of course, you know? it's like it would be like giving out a swag bag that had 
that had like boxed wine in it. Right. You know, like, yes. Like Thunderbird wine. Right. So it's all very good stuff, but I just don't give a fuck about it. Did I ever tell <clears> you? We've a, been talking about it for 20 minutes. Well, so no, I mean, obviously you do care and that's fine. I think I it's good to care. Did I ever tell you about co- the way they do coffee in South Korea? I'm dying to know how they do coffee in South Korea. Well, I went to South Korea in, it was either 99 or 2000. And that was kind of at the peak of my, well, that was toward actually toward the end of my coffee ob- obsession, doing it the right way kind of thing. And uh-huh. I was very sort of, I wasn't really snobbish about it, but I just took it for granted that I'd be able to have coffee in Korea that would meet with my standards, even though I knew that, that tea was probably what was going to be, or I thought tea would be the, the big thing over there. And did you, uh, did you expect that the Koreans would be many years behind where you were in your coffee? No, prep? no, I was not prepared for that. But what I found was something so bizarre mm-hmm. that to this day, I still, it makes sense. It makes sense when I think about it, but at the time at first, it uh, it was ve- a very weird situation. Here's what happened. Yes. The first morning there, I woke up all jet lagged and screwed up and in desperate need of, of coffee. And we were staying with essentially with like in-laws. So we weren't at a hotel. It wasn't like I could go downstairs to like get an American breakfast or something. Uh, and, but they were all drinking coffee. I'm like, yeah, I'd like some. So I watched the the... the mom whoever she was the grandmother prepare it and to my absolute astonishment and abject horror it was instant it was instant coffee yes but it wasn't instant coffee like i had ever had it it was so we have, you know, what who's the big instant one? Ma- Maxwell House here? Who does the... Yeah, I mean, it, not Nescafe, right? That's Europe. That's uh, Europe. Yeah, yeah, let's call it Maxwell House. Okay. They have something over there. Sanka, Sanka. Sa- well, yeah. I thought Sanka was decaf. Oh, I, I don't have to look that up. There's n- unfortunately, there's no way to look to look anything up. Yeah, but that's too bad. I, <laughs> I, I watched... Oh my God, Dan, you're absolutely right. It is decaffeinated. Yeah. One of the earliest decaffeinated varieties of coffee, Sanka. Wow. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I I watched her uh I watched her take their version of instant coffee which was called and I believe is still the number one instant coffee in South Korea, Maxim. Uh, Maxim. N- not to be confused with Maxim magazine. No, or condom brand. R- oh, Magnum. Oh, Magnum, right. Yeah. Which is also an ice cream brand. (laughs) And they pronounce it, of course, Maxim, Maxim. Maxim. And it showed. You you might call it Maxime. Maxime. The the picture on it, I still remember, was it showed a little coffee mug and the woman sort of above the coffee mug enjoying the aroma of it. And she took two scoops of that into a little cup. And then two scoops of sugar, same size as the coffee, into it. Wow. And then two scoops of non-dairy creamer. Oh, yeah. Into it. So there was a it's total the of... Two, the, the two scoops method. Yeah. Well, six six, six of everything. And then they put in what I thought was an astonishingly small amount of water, of boiling water into it. And it was a syrupy concoction... 
that was so far removed from what I had ever thought of as coffee. But of course, I, like I knew it had caffeine and, and sugar. Mm-hmm. So of course, I, I hooked on to that. And by the time, after I spent a couple of weeks there, by the time I got back, I said to my wife, I'm like, I, I made a cup of coffee. I'm like, yeah, we're going to have like good old American Joe again. <laughs> like my old way, you know, I like I got out of French, my French press and everything. I made it. I'm like, I got to go run to the grocery store, get some instant coffee. I had totally wow. become hooked on it. And yeah, it took me, it took me a couple weeks to get back to normal. <laughs> Isn't that weird when I'm in Europe, like you can go down to the grocery store and get Nescafe here or instant coffee here. Uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever think to do it. But when I'm in Europe <clears throat> and you get those little single serving Nescafe packets. Yeah. I hoard them <laughs> like I'm living on an island and they are a form of seashell money. You know, like every time I'm somewhere where I can get a little handful of those yeah. nest cafes, yeah. I'm like, every one of these is a delicious cup of coffee in a bag. And I'm like, I'm stuffing them in my, my coat. Like, like they're little, yeah. Like, like it's some kind of, uh, like stone money. And, I I can't account for it. I bring them back here even. I have a little jar of them on the counter, probably 15 little Nescafe tubes. And when I when I run out of coffee, I completely forget that they're even there. I'm like, oh, I'm out of coffee. Whereas when I acquired these things, I treated them like like precious gold. So I, coffee is such a weird thing. When I lived in 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 um, Spanish Harlem. I lived. Uh, I live uh, at 118th in Lexington for uh, like five months one time a long time ago over the course of the summer, and I got really in, really into drinking that sort of standard New York coffee regular. You just say coffee, you know, coffee regular or whatever, and they put in right some amount of what seems like condensed milk <laughs> and sugar and it's stuff I would never prepare my coffee that way. It's that Dunkin' Donuts coffee. But, yeah. but no, it's just like it's from a little bodega and it's phenomenal. I would never mess with it. I don't even want to know what goes in it. I just ask for it and the, you know, the little gal makes it and then it then then it is. It just is, you know? And and uh but I w- I wouldn't ask for coffee that way anywhere else except like even if I'm in Lower Manhattan, I wouldn't drink it that. Really, way. it's just a thing that I associate with Harlem and the North, you know. Uh, but then, then there's the way that you drink it in Spain, which is like you. I would never get anything other than a little teeny shot of espresso and a little demi tasse, little you know, like a. But like all a, of these are still real coffee. Like you're still talking yeah. about coffee that it is fit for consumption by a human. Yeah, that's yeah. Generally. Yes. But I, but I think of them as like different beverages. I don't, I live in coffee central here, but I never get two shots of espresso in a little cup with a, with a little bit of heavy cream. Like I don't drink it like that here, but I wouldn't drink it any other way in Spain. So what, what the WTF I could get it that way here. Yeah. I don't even, you know, I was, I was sitting at a place the other day and they had affogato. That's your thing. That's your crazy thing. Yeah. And I was just, I, 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 we had been talking about it and then I saw it in a restaurant and I hadn't seen it in a long time. And I was just reminded, like, again, I have not been able to place what point in my life it was that I was having those 
so regularly that I, that I have this powerful association of them, not with a, not with a time that I can recall, but with a time, you know, like I know I used to do that all the time, but I have no way of placing it. I have no way of placing it anymore. Like it, it had to have been, it had to have been at a restaurant. It's not a thing that I would have made at home, but some, you know, someone I was dating who worked in some restaurant had the ability to give me these things and I had them all the time, but now, oh, you know what the other one was? It was those little, those little bottles of coffee, carbonated, sugared coffee pop that I also used to drink all the time at some restaurant where I was dating somebody and you can't even get those anymore. Uh, it drives me crazy, but that's part of, I, I have now just recently, I've realized that I have lived enough life now that some of it is becoming part of uh, like a, a noise of background memory. And I always used to, I always used to be so suspicious of my dad uh, and my mom when they would say, yeah, I mean, I don't remember. That was a long time ago. And I don't, I'm not exactly, I can't remember. And I would, cause I had a really good memory and I was like, you can't remember. Right. What's wrong? That with just, you? well, it just seems like a lie. It just seems like you're just, you're just trying to avoid thinking about it or trying to avoid telling me about it. And particularly people my own age who, who couldn't remember stuff clearly. I was, I was very, very suspicious, but now I've, 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 I've crossed through the doorway and I'm someone who can say, yeah, I used to have those all the time. I don't remember where. I don't remember with whom and I don't remember how. But yeah, I know those. I just, just somewhere. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. And I used to always pride myself on not just being able to remember events, but I could remember dates and circumstances. I could remember things that I read very, very well. I could watch a movie and be able to quote all the, the good lines and now, most of that seems just to be gone. Like, oh, did really? I said that? Yeah, you told me yesterday. Don't you remember? And that's the other thing that people do. Everyone does this. Everyone. Oh, remember you said this? Well, no, I don't remember. Oh, no, you don't remember? Well, remember because you said this? No, I don't remember it. No, remember though? Because you told me that? No, I don't remember. It's just gone, John. I really do feel, and this is, you know, I, I, I don't want all of our conversations to seem like cautionary tales to our younger <laughs> listeners. Of course not. Because I know a lot, of, a, a lot of the appeal of podcasts is less obvious to people um, who didn't grow up with um, internet, right? I, I mean, I, I understand that we have a lot of listeners that are uh, even a generation younger than us. Right. And the astonishing thing about when we were growing up is that Every step away, every step of the way, along the way, the people that were older than us didn't really think to accurately prepare uh, younger people for what they had in store. You know, there was a certain amount of there was a certain amount of doomy talk about, well, enjoy it while you're young because it all goes away when you get older. 
but older was sort of this general, like, what, when I get to be 18, all the fun goes away? Right. Um, there wasn't a very clear, even when I was in high school, the adults that were ostensibly guiding us weren't doing a very good job of accurately portraying adulthood. They were, they were, they were, um, proposing things. They were kind of prescribing things. Here's what you need to do in order to be prepared. You need to have a college degree. You need to these things. You need to have, you need to be prepared, but it wasn't clear what we needed to be prepared for. Right. Like, what, uh, every, all that talk about you need a college education was always about earning a living. There wasn't, no one ever said to me in high school, listen, you're going to be at cocktail parties and it's going to be very important at a cocktail party to be sparkling and scintillating. Uh-huh. And if you can't be sparkling and scintillating, that's fine. You should learn to be a good listener. <laughs> you should learn to be a good conversationalist in the way that you can. So if you don't want to be the storyteller, be the interlocutor, be the person that asks a good question. You know, uh, all this like weird Dale Carnegie stuff about looking people in the eye and, and so forth. But like, uh, in the future, when you are a grown up, there will be a, uh, there's a major difference between someone that gets on the escalator and stands in the middle of it obliviously and someone who gets on the escalator and stands over to the side. Uh, all this kind of, not just social grace, you know, but, but, um, another thing they never say is like, okay, when you graduate from high school and go into college, there's a period and you can make it long or short where you are a grown up, uh, but you can still be reckless. And if you make it short, uh, you're risking later on feeling like you never really lived. Mm. But if you make it long, you risk not really taking advantage of like your youth as a, as a engine of, of rapid forward motion. You know, if you, if you spend like I did 15 to 20 years just pursuing your bliss, you will look back as I do and say, you know, there were those people that went to work when they were 24 at a thing that they loved. Right. And I didn't have that experience as I was lounging around in cafes talking about alternative theater with a bunch of other dinglings. And so, <laughs> you know, but, but talking to, talking to people who are younger than you and saying like, Ah, there's um here's what you have to look forward to and what's and what's crazy about middle age which is something that i feel like came upon me in the night mm-hmm. right like i was i was still you know i was an older young person for a long time i was a little bit older than everybody else i had a lot of experience but all that experience was just i just employed it as a way of being sort of an interesting um youthful person. And then in the night one day, like my vision went south. My memory started to go south. This just happened recently. My beard turned white. If you look at a picture of me five years ago, I had no white at all in my hair or beard. It was like, there was a little stripe of blonde in it. And now 
uh, when I'm with my daughter, periodically somebody goes, oh, is this your granddaughter? No. I'm like, you bastard. Although she could be, right? I'm 48. Mm-hmm. And I have a six-year-old. If I had had a, if I'd had a kid when I was young and then that, they'd had a kid when they were young. And like if you were, people, uh, you just, here's what you just tell people. You just tell people. Like, you know, this is my third, this is my third marriage or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then they'll just admire you. This is my third marriage or just say, yeah, I mean, I, every, um, every five years I get divorced and I marry, I have a new kid. uh, You marry, yeah, marry a bit. You know, the great thing about high school girls is they, they stay the same age right? and let, and let those people walk away feeling really bad. Yeah. Uh, generally the people that ask me if I'm her grandfather are old people. Because I think old people still see the world in terms of you get married when you're 23, and most young most people my age or, or younger people don't see anything weird about being you know already in middle age before you have your first kid. No, that's very very normal right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, although I'm still like I'm still probably the oldest dad that I can, the oldest dad by a fair margin of everybody that I see at the school. There Mm. are, there, there is a mom who's not as old as I am, but who's, you know, like I would consider a contemporary, but she, you know, she, she had her daughter late in life. Um, and there's a mom that I do think is my age, but she's gay and her wife is younger. And so I think her wife is the biological mother of the child. And she's, she, I think she's absolutely my age. But yeah, I, I, uh, I never had sympathy for people who had weaknesses. Like, um, and by that I mean who had formerly been hale and hearty and now were complaining about their back. Right? Like yeah. my dad. Oh, I'm back. Really? Really? You're back? <laughs> Give me a break. Oh, Jesus. You know, yeah, I know you're back. And you and you can't remember things and your eyesight is bad. Boo hoo. But now I do want people to, to give me a, give me an extra, extra minute or two. <clears throat> I don't remember. It's so, it's so infuriating. Yeah, and that's the weird thing I was thinking about this too. Something along these lines, where it, you know, like it, it, like it used to. You used to hear your parents complaining about these types of things, and half me is like, ah, it's probably not that bad, or the other half me is, ah, it's kind of funny, right? Ah, like his right. back hurts, <laughs> my back yeah. never hurts. Like how bad? Hey, Dad, could it hurt? catch me, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. And you're like, oh, he he can't climb up to the top of that you know, pile of discarded refuse in the back of this construction site. Like he's slipping down it. Like what a, I just ran right up there, you know, Yeah, what a dope. Yeah. Well, and in that sense, it is funny, right? I mean, my, my, uh, <laughs> current, the current foibles that I'm facing are universally human ones. And, and it is funny. And it, particularly it's funny when you see somebody my age who is really kicking and screaming going into it. Um, who does not want to, does not want to have that uncomfortable confrontation with reality and say, Oh shit, this is irreversible. Right. Like, this isn't, this isn't a, uh, uh, this isn't a problem with eating right and exercising. 
this is a problem of like decay uh, from all this time being bombarded by the sun and the sun hates you and the sun hates me and it just gradually, you know, sends radiation at us until we die and hooray, right? Ha ha lol. Uh, because there will always be people coming up behind us, ho- hopefully, presumably, mm-hmm. and the people that went before us are gone, and all the red sports cars that you buy at this age won't arrest that process. And I still haven't seen a lot of evidence that eating right and exercising does much about it. You know? Um, oh, how hard have you really looked? Well, just in the sense that we've had, I mean, like hippie vegetarianism and hyper health oriented body awareness and uh, Western adoption of Eastern techniques of meditation and yoga and so forth. uh, Those things have been practiced on a pretty large scale. By, uh, by Western people, starting in San Francisco, presumably, for 50 years now. And it would stand to reason, given the sample size of people that have been doing these things, ever-growing sample size, that at a certain point, there would be 140-year-olds. Because there were people who started vegetarianism and yoga and and um, and meditation in 1965 who were 40 at the time. And so they should be 95 now mm. and noticeably, demonstrably a class apart, right? If there, if, if the health benefits were as advertised, there should be an entire group, an entire demographic of people in their, in their late nineties who are living a quality of life above and beyond because they are this, they're a self-selecting group who also as part of their culture stay in really, um, like they they like to brag too about their superiority so there would be and they always did right that there's all in in a component of that lifestyle is also a component of like moral superiority so there would be an there would be i get the i feel like there would be a sort of communities that were based around that lifestyle but like in a retirement context Mm -hmm. and the rest of us would start to have to confront like, Oh my goodness, look at them. The regulars, the normals who continue to eat at Arby's right into late age are all dying of like blisters are all dying of liver spots. But here our like supreme elders are, are wearing white robes like in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Right. And uh, they're doing it like slow guitar when, when milling. And look at them. Like they're going to live to be 150. But I don't see it. 
I mean, I do see some at, at democratic party events, I do see some old elegant people, but I feel like they were, there have always been old elegant people, but not in the, not in the like enormous wave that there should be if those lifestyles produced real results. I think the results that they produce are in the moment throughout the lifetime of the person, they give that person gratification. They give that person something to think about. Um, they turn body obsession into something that is arguably positive. Like I think the benefits of them are mostly psychological in the moment to feel like you are doing something, you know, I'm doing something about right, right. my age and declining health. I'm taking, um, <clears throat> I'm taking action and from a young age to feel like, and I'm, I'm separating out the people who practice that lifestyle, uh, because they, because they feel like it feels better. Although even that I have a, I have a question about people who come to me and say, I don't like ice cream. I just don't like it. It's like, wow. No, no one has ever said those words. No, it's not true. It's not true. I hear it. I hear it spoken aloud. I don't even like ice cream. It just tastes blech, on my tongue. All really? ice cream, tastes, all ice cream tastes the same to me. I heard that very recently. All ice cream tastes the same to me. That's weird. And I was like, Hmm. All right. I'm not arguing. I just feel like, Unless you're some kind of like weird non-super taster where your tongue is dead inside, ice cream, really? But all by way of saying the, the rationale, I'm watching very carefully. I really am. I think that we are, we have been over the last couple of centuries and particularly in this, in the 20th century, extending life dramatically. Right, the average age in eighteen o two was like forty, but because of penicillin and because of better nutrition, we have pushed that. We have pushed the average age out a lot. Sure, and when we keep extending, there are people now living into their hundred and tens, kind of much more regularly. But when you interview them. More often than not, they say, well, the secret to success was to smoke cigarettes until I was. Yeah. I mean, there, I remember there was this, there's one guy that I worked with and, uh, he and I were talking one day and he was talking about how he got gotten a cavity and had to go to the, to the dentist. And this other guy used to sit there and he, he's kind of the guy you're describing. Like he smoked, he drank, he did whatever, didn't exercise, ate whatever he felt like eating. And, uh, he's sitting there listening to us. He says, oh yeah, I've never had a cavity. And he was older than both of us. And I said, really? You've never had a cavity? No, I never, no, God, no, never had a cavity. I'm like, what do you do? He said, oh, well, I, I get the, you know, I go when I buy a toothbrush, I buy the one that's the hardest toothbrush, you know, the hardest bristles I can buy. And uh, I, I brush as hard as I possibly can and get everything out of there. Mm -hmm. And my friend Bill said, you know, that goes against every single thing that we know and believe about <laughs> dentistry, dental hygiene, and tooth care. And right. yet he's got the cavity, and this other guy's never had one. Yeah. 
Yeah. The hardest bristles. Yeah. Yeah. Just wearing away that. Right. Wearing away that outer coating. Yeah. But uh, he but, hadn't. Yeah. He there. The proof is in the pudding. And, and all of that, I mean, the, the, the problem with all of those prescriptive health and nutrition philosophies is that as they're developed, there is no way to use the scientific method on it. You know, you can't say, I suppose with hard bristles, you can say, well, we've been, you know, we've been, people have been brushing their teeth for a long time now. And typically in dentist's office, we see that with hard bristles, there's a lot more wear on the teeth. But that wasn't a, um, that wasn't really a scientific study. You know, they didn't eliminate the other, uh, the other possibilities. Right. It's just sort of anecdotal, anecdotal. And particularly all this stuff where they say, oh, you can't eat tomatoes that have been in cans. The tomatoes leach the metal from the cans. You have to eat tomatoes. We, I know we've been eating tomatoes from cans for years, but we have to stop. We have to eat tomatoes from jars. Right. I heard that 10 years ago. And I, I went into my pantry and I looked at all the tomatoes in cans and I just, I suddenly saw them as poison. Like, oh, these tomatoes have been sitting in the cans, leaching the cans. And what, seriously, tomatoes in cans leaching the metal? I think that it's more that tomatoes in cans that have been sitting in cans maybe take on a little bit of weird taste because of this process. But you know, the, the trace amounts of mercury in fish, the, um, I mean, clearly Arby's is made from pink slime and (laughs) pink. Yes. It is truly, truly awful, awful, awful stuff. But there are people that eat at Arby's all the time and more or less they're fine. And there are people that eat at Arby's and they appear to be more or less fit you know, it's not that there's a, it's not that people that eat at Arby's are a subclass of like that people that you can look at on the street and say Arby's eater. I mean, sometimes you can, but not all the time. Every once in a while, Dan, I go to Arby's. It's been a long time. It's been a year since I've been to an Arby's, but all you have to do is say Arby's. All you have to do is say it aloud and it, and it's you know, the, the egg timer is ticking. Right, you say Arby's, and then five days later, you're driving down the street. You see an Arby's. You go, ugh, no. But it's in there. That clock is ticking. Yeah. Eventually, you're going to be really hungry. You're going to be down in an industrial part of town. You're going to say, oh, that barbecue place. You're going to drive over there. Oh, it closed at three. God damn it! What closes at three? I hate you. And then there's an Arby's blinking in the distance, and partly out of anger at the barbecue place you're part of flipping the bird at the at the barbecue place that closed at three involves going down to the arby's and getting two to three large roasts to be salmon <laughs> and i'm i'm not advocating it and i am not i'm not saying it's going to happen i've just li- i'm in middle age now i've lived long enough to know that all you have to do is invoke arby's and it's like a genie it rides around with you for a couple of weeks before it sees its opening. But so <clears throat> I'm watching very carefully, right? I'm almost 50 years old. And if I don't start to see a huge bubble of 
like baby boomer Jack LaLanne's, 100-year-olds that are swimming across San Francisco Bay pulling a tugboat on a chain, then I'm going to start, as I'm doing now, calling a little bit bullshit on at least <clears throat> at least the longevity and extended health uh, results of or benefits of a life where you're you're practicing this sort of minor uh, lifestyle of deprivation, right? I'm not going to eat red meat. I'm not going to eat refined sugar. I'm not going <clears> to. <throat> I'm going to take all these things out of my life. And I think in the I think in the short term, having lived a vegan. Not. I'm sorry. I did briefly leave. And by, by briefly, I mean like one week of being a vegan. But, but being a gluten-free, I did feel an immediate benefit, like, a, like the health benefit of not being tired in the afternoon and not having dandruff. See, I remember the fir- when I first met you in person at XOXO a few years ago. We were all sitting down to eat some lunch, and we were talking about gluten-free stuff, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you said, yeah, I was, I was gluten-free for a while, but not anymore. Mm-hmm. And I said, when did you, you change it? You said, well, it was my birthday yesterday, uh-huh. and I just went off. Uh-huh. I said, oh, really? What have you been doing? He said, well, <laughs> eating lots of pizza, eating this and that. I said, how do you feel? You said, terrible. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. I did feel terrible, but... You know, the amount of, well, then this is, I guess the, this is the equation, right? I, I acknowledge that I'm walking around now with a baseline of like good body feeling, good, healthy body feeling that it, the baseline is lower. I feel all the time probably quite quite a bit less vigor right because i'm taking in what we think of as garbage not all the time i don't sit around drinking 64 in, uh, ounce cokes and eating reese's peanut butter cups all day like i eat a normal diet let's call it that a sandwich here and there, a bowl of pho a couple of times a week, some Thai food. Like I try to eat a variety of food. That's what's fun to me, variety. Um, and so my baseline, I'm not, I don't have that like crystalline feeling uh, that you get when you're eating raw vegetables. You know, that, that feeling of like, shing. But also that shing feeling requires a like a, a really focused daily practice, which I find burdensome because every time you think about a meal, you're thinking about it in terms of how am I restricted here? Mm. I'm not able to just go into any restaurant. I'm not able to order from 90% of the menu. I'm not able to pick, I'm not able to share in communal activities like getting a pizza together or um, even going and getting dessert. I'm not, you know, it's a, it's a life of purposeful deprivation, which in a way is exclusive. It's not a thing unless you're living in a, 
unless you join Mensa and you walk around all the time with your Mensa friends and you feel like we're in Mensa, we're not going to sit around talking about, <laughs> we, we are only talking about ideas, not, right. not other people. How boring. Um, unless you're living in a society of vegans or of uh, a society of gluten-free people, if you're trying to just be a person in the world, so around the idea of food, you have made yourself exclusive and you're thinking about it all the time. And I'm not particularly thinking about it, but most of the thinking I do about it is re self-recriminating. Right, like every time I open the refrigerator, I go, "Well, what do I want? I want a couple of these Italian sausages and a little, you know, a bowl of applesauce." But I'm, I feel from years of being lectured and fingers waggled at me that that's not really a healthy lunch. Two Italian sausages and a bowl of applesauce doesn't meet my federally mandated pyramid of nutrition. <laughs> right, yes. And it would cause several of my friends to, you know, to recoil and gasp and so forth and so on. So even though I end up eating two Italian sausages and a bowl of applesauce, I don't feel good about it. I feel that it has, it has fueled a voice inside of me that likes to sit in judgment and say, boo, bad you. And when I'm eating gluten-free and raw vegetables, that voice more or less is silenced, but it's replaced by this other voice, which I find equally unlikable, a voice that's, you know, that's, that's following me around every day going, well, you know, got to think, you got to think about your food now. This, you know, <laughs> this like nitpicky, um, like it's a little bit of a shitty voice. So I, so anyway, once I got used to feeling that sort of dandruffy slowness again, after I went back to eating gluten, it's a, it's a mild, if you just kind of shook it off, it's a mild burden, right? You know, like I don't, I don't feel that like, hello, da, da, da. it's me, Dudley do right. <laughs> I feel a little bit more like, ah, yeah, yeah. All right. Where's the sausages? It's, but, but the, but some of the, some of even the fun of being a Bacchus is, is stolen from me by the number of magazine articles I've read telling me that Arnold Palmer's are, are bad for me. And the suggestion therefore is that they're killing me. Right. If they are bad for me, then they're taking away not just like longevity, but also they're taking away life in the moment. Wow. That's heavy. Yeah. And I guess what I'm looking for is like, are they? Do people who are vegetarian and who meditate every day, are the results apparent. Now I know from within they are, uh, people who practice those things will tell you that the results are very apparent from within, but are they apparent to us in the outside world? Do you see those people living such superior lives that they begin to sequester themselves 
into communities that are producing more goodness in the world? Like, are they inventing things within their community? Do we say, oh, here's a new innovation from the vegetarians. Here is a new form of poetry and song from the vegans. The, the worldwide community of vegans are producing more beauty that we that is counterbalancing the garbage culture of the Arbizans. Right. The Arbizans. Yes. And I, you know, in some ways the, the jury feels like it's still out because the Arbizans are still, a, at least in parts of America, they're still much bigger mm-hmm. group of people. I don't know. I don't know whether environmental consciousness and, um, love of whales and desire to protect the art or uh, the Arctic desire to protect the Arctic, whether those things come from the heightened, uh, like mental and spiritual, uh, like process of being a vegetarian or whether being a vegetarian follows from an intellectual understanding that we need to protect the Arctic. And I suspect it may be the latter, but because I certainly believe we should protect the Arctic, but I have not gotten all all the way on board that, um, the Exxon Valdez of vegetarianism, if you will. Something, I feel like something is running, I feel like something is, this is a, this is a side note. That there's something in the wall of my house. I just heard some sound. Like something that has been placed there? You mean like a listening device? A or listening a, device or a machine? Because mm, I wouldn't be surprised. That kind of thing happens way more than you think. It, it could be like one of those, one of those Boston Dynamics uh, little robot creepy crawlies that they've now shrunk down so that it's the size of a rabbit. Okay. And someone, the guy that came to read the meter actually was a, was a, uh, a false flag. And yeah. he stuck some, some little, um, rabbit sized Boston dynamics. Right. Crawler inside my walls. No, I can see that. Hmm. You have to be worried. These days you have to be vigilant. Our sponsor today is Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon, they're better than whatever you're wearing right now. We love Mac Weldon here. They believe in smart design, premium fabric, simple shopping. And that's the whole thing. I, I just, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to buy something. And I was immediately concerned that this is going to be one of those experiences of like, oh man, it's going to be forever. I'm going to be on the site. I'm going to be having to, you know, click around and search for stuff. But now they make it easy. Part of the reason they make it easy is they only sell a handful of things. The most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. John is a big fan of the silver underwear. <laughs> These are anti-microbial, uh, and they actually have fibers of silver woven into the underwear. They have shirts that have this too. So that it eliminates odor naturally, and it's super comfortable. You buy one of these, if you don't like the first pair, they'll still let you keep it, and they'll, they'll refund you, no questions asked. That's how confident they are. I wear this stuff too, and I love it. It's great. They look good. They perform well, perfect for working out, going out, everyday life, you name it. 
You get a special deal for listeners of Roadwork, 20% off using the promo code ROADWORK, all one word, at MacWeldon.com. One more time, because they love it when I repeat things. MacWeldon.com, 20% off using the promo code ROADWORK. Seriously, you, go, you, need, you need some sweatpants, you need some t-shirts, socks even, underwear. I know you've been wearing the same pair of underwear for too long. I know you. Go try them out. The next place you get a pair of underwear, make it Mac Weldon. 20% off. Road work. Thanks, Mac Weldon. So I wonder if you are um, under some kind of surveillance. Like, are you being surveilled? Are you being, are there people with that kind of interest in you still, do you think? Or is that not, not as much? Um, I feel like right now I'm pretty small potatoes, uh, because there are, there are a lot of people recently radicalized who are now comprising, um, an increasingly organized resistance. Sure. Uh, it feels like Paris in 68. There's, there's a groundswell of first time voters and, and people that were formerly, formerly complacent, like middle-aged people who have been, um, sort of wallowing in complacency for a long time, energized by this group of people that are like, wait a minute, what? And it's, and there's an organized resistance that is working toward a common goal, which is invigorating. And partly the, the, opposition, the enemy is so dull witted that it, it feels like the game has become much more a game of brute force and much less a game of subtlety and, and espionage. I mean, I'm talking about within the, within the, the narrow world of people that are trying to affect long-term outcomes like right now, long-term outcomes are on the back burner because even, even people who are radical, who are thinking much more long-term than the people who are, uh, who are, I guess you wouldn't call them radical. The, the people who are, um, reactionary, like reactionary people are never long-term thinkers. But even the radicals are not really focused on the long-term. In fact, if you talk about the long-term too far out, they get hostile to you because they want you to understand that there is an immediate emergency problem that we have to address with all of our force. And I'm not ever really especially devoted to the immediate problem. It's not the thing that interests me most because I've, you know, because of what I've read, the way that I have, uh, studied, I guess the world over time, I feel like the immediate problem is only interesting as a, as a deviation from, from, uh, the mean increase. You know, like over time, the graph is going up in every direction. 
how do we account, how do we plan for what we know will ultimately be true rather than how do we, because, because there's a, in, in that emergency mentality, there's a feeling that the long-term outcome is really at risk, right? If we don't do something now, then in the future, everyone will live in slavery. Or if we don't do something now, then all of our rights will be taken away and there will be, you know, intolerable conditions. Or if we don't do something now, some people will really feel the effects of it. Their lives will be measurably ruined. And at least personally, I don't feel like, I don't feel drawn to that work in the same way. Because every every day, all around the world, people's lives are, are shit. And they're confronted with, I mean, all the cause celebs right now, all of the, all the emergency situations that we're talking about are, they require that we ignore the other emergency situations also globally affecting hundreds of thousands of people that we're not talking about that aren't in fashion. So I'm always thinking, yeah, there, this is an immediate, this is an intermediary blip. This is a bad time in some situations, but in general, all conditions trend upward. But how do we, how do we think about that in terms of like best possible outcomes? What are we, what are we hoping for long-term accounting for that trend? How do we utilize it? How do we make the best use of it? You know, like we, we've, we've spent so much effort saving labor. That was the mission of the 20th century, the industrial mission, right? The, the, the mission of manufacturing was how do we, how do we conserve labor so that more of us have more time to think right. and to dream and to make art, to make things more beautiful? That was the, that was the whole notion of it, of mechanization. And now we're in a, we are in a condition that would have amazed people even, even 40 years ago in terms of our ability to have machines do the heavy lifting for us, but we're not exploiting it because somewhere along the line, it became, it, it, it was thought of exclusively as a capitalist benefit and we mistook money for leisure instead of understanding that we had built these machines in order to capture leisure, not capture money. And as money gets accrued to this narrow, narrow group of people, this 1%, we are talking about, you know, we're, we're understanding that to be unfair and yet we're accepting the, we're accepting their terms that money is what we're, what we're after, that money represents leisure and that without distributing that money more fairly, um, we're deprived of leisure and, you know, they are what hoarding leisure. But of course that's not what's, that's not actually what's happening, right? We have more leisure even in our, in, even in our relative poverty than any human beings throughout time. Even those of us who work 60 hours a week, 
are able to live within, you know, within much more luxurious circumstances, electric heat, so forth and so on. And I know that there are always exceptions that prove the rule or outliers, people that are living in cities right now with no electric heat or living right. in their car. Right. But generally the, the, um, the, the center of the, you know, the overwhelming majority of the bell curve is ha- living conditions have improved dramatically and there's much more leisure available. And the 1% that are hoarding this money don't really have any more leisure. They're working their asses off too. And they're living in Mar-a-Lagos that are grotesque. (laughs) You know, they're like gross environments that you couldn't possibly be comfortable or happy in. They are, they're almost, almost exclusively the most unhappy people you would ever see in your life. This was always my complaint about the, the reaction to rich kids of Instagram Mm -hmm. where there are these, you know, teenagers flying in private jets showing off their expensive watches and all you have to do is look at them and just feel like, oh, they're, they're so miserable. Those people are so unhappy. And, and to look at those pictures and to have them make you unhappy is again, to accept their terms, which I reject. I do not believe that the rich kids of Instagram have anything I want. And nor do I think that Michael Milken or the robber barons of, uh, of lower Manhattan have anything I mm-hmm, want mm-hmm. the robber barons of the upper East side, but we have mistook what we've, what the, the end goal of the work that our forefathers have done. We we've mistook what the, what the actual point of that work was, which was to give us the opportunity to have more of the sort of, more of, well, more time. Time is the, is wealth. So a lot of the, a lot of the rebellion also seems fixated within the language of capitalism, fixated about making it more fair rather than understanding and appreciating the time we do have that our parents and grandparents didn't and trying to maximize that time and coordinate that time with one another so that whatever our economic conditions are, we're exploiting that time to its best advantage. And that's, there are all sorts of people probably even listening to this podcast that are going to say without the money, the time, you don't have access to the time. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's true. I think it's a question of how you calibrate your thinking and how you examine your own resources and say, how do I, how do I make use of these resources in order to achieve that time that belongs to me? So long-term, I don't, you know, I don't want to be out yelling at the 1% because I don't think the 1% I mean, I think the 1% are victims of a spiritual malady and I don't want to be, I I don't want to be also a victim of that same malady. But how do I, how do I do that in light of, you know, of the, of the wave and how do I share that with enough people that it can affect the course of history? 
and that's 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 a that's a lot of responsibility there too don't you think Mm. on yourself i feel like anybody that is thinking about stuff has a responsibility and a lot of people are thinking about stuff and they're they are accepting the responsibility that their thoughts mandate and part of complacency is thinking about stuff and then feeling like eh you know uh that's a transitory idea and probably a lot of other people have had it and so therefore it's not my responsibility to act on it i was reading an article yesterday about a young woman who started editing Wikipedia pages when she was 12 years old because she read Wikipedia and it interested her. She realized it was a community effort and she said, oh, I'd like to contribute to this. And so at 12 years old, she started making minor edits to Wikipedia entries. And as time went on, she developed into a very active, prominent Wikipedia editor. Mm -hmm. And the article was about the fact that as a female Wikipedia editor, she was constantly being assaulted by MRAs and other just trolls and and garbage men who were attacking her for being a woman, which this last election has really shown me is like much more epidemic than I understood and then then was revealed until now the the internet has revealed it like this complete fear on the part of men and women of women like more white women voted for Trump than for Hillary. And that is astonishing. Mm -hmm. And it, and you know, my mom, I was talking about Elizabeth Warren the other day and my mom got up and almost threw a thing across the room and she was like, no, you know, they, the, the Americans will not vote for a woman for president. They are too, they are too ignorant and hateful. And I was like, mom, there's no way we can change that unless we keep running women for president from the left until one wins. And she was like, God damn it. It's that mentality that's consigning us to this fascist dictatorship. And I was like, wow, you know, at 82, she lost another chink of faith out of her, out of the iron chain she's been building her whole life. You know, like something, and that's something we all have to think about. Like Mm -hmm. my faith was shaken, but, but the responsibility of sitting around and thinking, I realized I read Wikipedia pages all the time where I go, Oh my God, this Wikipedia page needs to be edited. Isn't that hilarious? And I close my computer because I feel like it's somebody else's responsibility. And the number of people who have been reading about, you know, some tribal leader in Kazakhstan on their Wikipedia is probably a pretty small number of people. And the ones that recognize that this page needs to be edited are an even smaller group of people. And the ones that can edit it and make it better, it's a very small group of people. And I'm one of them and I'm not assuming that responsibility, right? which is a small thing. Like I'm, I'm just following some hyperlink somewhere else and I'm eventually going to be reading about Joan Jett and I should spend 45 minutes here like making this a better thing because I got here and someone else will get here and why not make, you know, why not, uh, why not carpet that space a little bit? Why not plant a few landscaping bushes? 
So I'm, I'm beginning to see better my own complacency and my own and what, and like, what are my thoughts? What contributions can I make? I don't feel like my contributions necessarily are out swinging a hammer in the, in this, the public space. I feel like my contributions are elsewhere, but they're real contributions. And what, and the real challenge is I need to start making those contributions rather than withholding them. Um, like I, I now am in a, in a little circle of lawyers because my girlfriend is a lawyer and they feel a real powerful responsibility to use the law in this instance. They know the law. They understand how the law can, um, how the law is both a defensive and an offensive weapon. And lawyers have completely like thwarted and frustrated the efforts of this new administration. And they haven't been able to do it all the way across the board, but they have successfully in, you know, injuncted a lot of the big, uh, the big initial promises of the, of the bad guys. They've just been like, Oh, that's interesting. Well, here we're going to, we're going to bury you under an avalanche of paper and there is a functioning court system and they are going to like, we're now, the front line. Right. And they're just, they're lawyers who took, who understood that that responsibility belonged to them and they went to work all pro bono work to say like, ah, here's a, here's a thing we can do. Like go fuck yourselves. <laughs> and each of us in our own sphere has that responsibility, you know, not to, not to overturn a car in the middle of uh, Pennsylvania Avenue and set it on fire because that's not the kind of revolution that's going to work in America, but rather the responsibility to figure out what you're good at and do that work better. So, you know, I mean, what are, what are our options? What are, what are your options and mine? We, um, We have people listening to us mm -hmm. and they also have each one of them, a unique set of skills. And we're able to, in this long form medium, talk about ideas regularly enough that we maintain a space, an intellectual space where ideas we're being, we're talking about ideas without a clear agenda. Um, talking about ideas in, in real time is still not only allowed, but, in, but it's also cherished somewhat, you know? Right. And to maintain that space is no small accomplishment and to encourage people to also create those spaces in their own communities and to sit around and say, it's very easy to shut down ideas. It's very easy to shut down a free exchange of ideas. Some of which make us uncomfortable in order to accomplish what you think is a beneficial short-term and long-term goal, which is to focus our attention on a singular ideology because that ideology seems like the, the one in the direction of progress. And I feel like that is never the case. You never 
ever are in are under conditions where it benefits us to shut down like f- the free associative uh, impulse to say, well, what about the opposite of that? Like, what about talking about no or talking about a, a, a complete a complete alternative to that way of thinking? That's the way that that's one of the ways that we move the ball forward. And if your impulse is to go out and and focus your attention on a single ideology, uh, you know that's awesome. We need those soldiers too. But it's it it's never in your interest to turn around and and try and shut people up. And that's, I guess, what I think of as my own responsibility. Not just to not just to make my own thoughts public, but also to encourage other people that it, it, that that's actually a positive thing. Sit around with your friends and, and bullshit and shoot the shit and resist the person in the room that says that wants to keep telling you that what you're saying um, is the what you, what you're saying or what or the whole process of sitting around and thinking is antithetical to actual work antithetical to the work that we need to be doing, which is organizing and, and fighting and yeah. punching and so forth. Um, but who knows? I mean, you, you can only do the work you called, you're, you're, you feel called to do. And you for a long time, Dan, have felt called to provide a, a provide a platform for talking. You know, to provide a platform for people who have ideas to get out. And Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, sometimes those ideas are, are focused on some aspect of, of tech or business. But a a lot of the time, what ends up happening in your, in your empire of podcasts (laughs) and your, and your empire over time podcasts that you've had is that they become places where people are riffing and, and bandying and that's a that is effectively a new form of the public square and it's and it's supplanting the old public squares of the um, the diner and the actual square in the middle of town um, and the churches even where those ideas are are given uh, given some voice, and now we're we're taking those ideas into our headphones, or taking those spaces into our headphones. But I guess we have to think of them as spaces rather than as private um, private luxuries or or you know private um, indulgences. Like they are actual spaces that you're sharing with other people. Yeah. And I think even just uh, even just acknowledging that it will it changes what your own responsibility is. You know, to to acknowledge even acknowledging for the first time like, "Oh, I'm not alone. There are tens of thousands of people sharing in this moment with me and and probably sharing my desire to yell back at the at my headphones." Or 
or to add my two cents. And that two cents also, like you do somewhat, if you feel you have a, uh, a responsibility to air that two cents, then you do. And it's not very effective to air that two cents by sending me an email. It's not nearly as effective as it is to take that two cents to your own 10 friends. That's how it promulgates. Not by, you know, not by sending me something that's like, I take issue, but rather to, to take the idea that you take issue with, present it to your 10 friends and let the, let the spark of that and the spark of your, your thoughts about it start to spread, right? Um, not, not virally in the sense of like a, like a bird flu that races through the culture and causes us all to be sick, but, a, but in the sense of like an, um, a virus that alters us, a virus we're not even aware of, like the, like, um, like, hypotrichinosis or whatever the fuck that thing is that you get from cat litter. Oh, right. Toxoplasmosis. Toxoplasmosis where the, where you're not even aware of it, but suddenly you love cats more. Right. That's what I like to think of this podcast as the toxoplasmosis of, um, of progressive thinking. 